This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. It's been a year since Donald Trump's shocking election, and I'm joined this week by The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb to talk through his views of how journalism and the country has responded over the past year. Then my CJR colleagues, Meg Dalton and John Alsop, come in to talk about this year's elections and the narratives surrounding them, the journalistic debate about whether to have Kellyanne Conway on the air, and a new development in the Harvey Weinstein story. But first, here's my conversation with Jelani Cobb. Is there a special title that goes with your professorship, or is it professor at Columbia Journalism School? Emperor of the known world. (laughs) So we're recording this on November 8th, 2017, Mm -hmm. but I want to start by going back a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2016, on this day, you were in North Carolina? Yeah. And what were you doing down there? What were you reporting on? I was there to write about some of the issues around voter suppression that had been, uh, you know, really prevalent uh, concerns in the elections in North Carolina. Uh, even outside of 2016, had been uh, going going on for a good while, and that had been the predominant storyline that I expected to uh, to follow that day. And I mean, that became some of what I wrote about for uh, that day. But the bigger story, obviously, was the uh, tectonic shift in American politics uh, that allowed Donald Trump to be elected as the president. So as you process that tectonic shift on that first evening into the next morning. What are your thoughts? What's the first thing you turn to as you think about what's just happened? Mm -hmm. I was wildly disconcerted. uh, And the reason for my, I guess, concern was both as an observer, you know, of American politics and having been at one of Trump's rallies, I think the day before, I had seen... uh, you know, some, I had come to believe that the term populism was a euphemism uh, because a great deal of uh, what he was articulating and what was happening at the rally were, was not um, about people's economic concerns. It was uh, a kind of cultural uh, backlash that took on some you know, very misogynistic and seemingly potentially violent overtones. And so having seen that be rewarded with a majority in the Electoral College, uh, I then became very concerned about what kind of climate we were embarking upon, what that meant for media, uh, having seen things like uh, when uh, Trump specifically singled out Katie Turr uh, for the derision and ridicule and you know, possible violence uh, of the people in the crowd at, at uh, I think, more than one uh, right. of his rallies. Uh, and I thought that we had just embarked upon a very dangerous moment both for the country and for journalism as a profession? For the country and for journalism, yeah. And so a few weeks after that, you warned against the normalization of Trump's absurdities, Mm -hmm. writing that they could blend into the background, quote, in a way that police sirens can become ambient noise in New York City. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that, and has that happened? Sure. I mean, I think if you live in New York City uh, or any major city, you hear sirens all the time. And... You, we don't process the fact that if we hear a siren, something has t- gone terribly wrong. It's just ambient. Uh, and I think that there were things that were happening that people were kind of moving past without necessarily 
grappling with what the long-term implications of them might be. Like one uh, being the complete untethered relationship from what we know of as factual truth. When PolitiFact had uh, scored that 71% of Trump's statements were at the very least partly false, and he nonetheless had a reputation among his supporters for being the more honest of the political candidates. Uh, I thought there was a real cause for concern because what it said was that we are now not dealing with the same uh, approach to reality, uh, and anything can be justified or rationalized. And so in that regard, I think that we have seen movement in two directions. Uh, One is that he has maintained, even as he has historic low uh, support, I think he's around 37% now, the last time I checked, uh, he has retained support in the mid-80s among his electorate. And so all the things that we've seen that are contrary to the institutional practices and values of democracy, the targeting uh, of the media, singling out the media as uh, enemies of the people, the attacks upon the independent judiciary, uh, the conflict uh, that he got into with not one but two uh, Gold Star families uh, who are dealing with the family members who had made the ultimate sacrifice for this country, the disregard of the intelligence community, Uh, the willingness to use the bully pulpit of the presidency to single out and attack individual citizens. like All these things that uh, should be alarming, I think, to one set of the public uh, has been. For another set of the public, it has gone completely, I think, unnoticed. Can I just ask Mm -hmm. on that, Mm -hmm. is there some blame for journalists in not making it clear that those incidents you mentioned should be alarming? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's been made clear. I think people have made that argument and people have uh, talked about that a great deal. But the problem is that it's not being heard uh, and we have the kind of echo chamber effect. Uh, And there's also, uh, as I was saying before, this kind of a la carte approach to reality where if you want a certain set of information, you want to view the world in a particular way, you can find the information that justifies you having that point of view. Uh, And so uh, not simply the kind of Fox News um, element of it, but also Breitbart and a host of other kind of lesser known uh, blogs are replicating information. We have now this question about the role that bots are are playing in all this. Uh, We're just now, a year after the election, uh, having congressional hearings last week uh, about Facebook and Google and Twitter uh, and the role of uh, Russian false advertising that was being uh, promulgated on social media. Uh, I, I think that this conversation has been had, but it hasn't been had in places where it really matters. Which are where? Well, um, as a matter of fact, Kyle Pope made this point uh, you know, recently in a conversation uh, about the way in which the hollowing out of the, the country, uh, that we have these uh, media... Uh, mega entities now on the coasts and the large cities, and then we have wide swaths of the country that are basically media deserts, and uh, not only are they uh, media deserts for local information, they have a suspicion, if not disdain, you know, for the large corporate uh, institutions that are providing information or providing media to them now, uh, and so uh, it's very difficult to penetrate that. So I want to touch on one of the 
topics that we've written a lot about that mm-hmm. has um, certainly been in the news, whether through Charlottesville mm-hmm. or any other number of uh, events over the last year. But playing on racial divisions was a huge part of Trump's campaign. Mm-hmm. We've seen Republican candidate in Virginia, Ed Gillespie, try mm-hmm. and touch on some of those same topics over the last month or so. Obviously, things turned out differently in mm-hmm. his case. Has the media done a good enough job recognizing and responding to the racial dynamic of the Trump presidency? Mm-hmm. So there's been a very curious uh, kind of bifurcation about the way the media has handled this. Uh, in terms of uh, kind of large legacy media organizations, you certainly did see people calling out what Trump was doing uh, you know, early on. Uh, and saying that this is trafficking in you know the worst kinds of uh, demagogic, uh, you know, divisive, um, and da- ultimately dangerous uh, politics. Uh, at the same time, uh, after the election, there was almost a genre of newspaper article in trying to separate the racism that had been uh, brandished by the campaign from the uh, racism of the electorate that voted for Trump uh, nonetheless. And so uh, that became a kind of curious element of the conversation because on some level it became, I think, self-exculpatory. Uh, it didn't really matter you know, the content of the hearts of the people who voted for him. Uh, the fact was that there was a person who has played a significant role <laughs> in the mainstreaming of white nationalism in our politics. This is actually in our political conversation now. Uh, and irrespective of what their reasoning was, people still voted for someone who represented that. And I think we still have to deal with those implications. And, and so I think that conversation has gone in both both directions. Uh, as time has gone on, when we saw things like uh, the reflexive willingness to uh, denounce and politicize violence that uh, appears to have been the product of, you know, a person of Arab descent or a person of Muslim faith in contrast to things like what we just saw in Texas uh, or Las Vegas where the shooter uh, is white and there's a kind of restraint that this, that's displayed you mean from there. the from president. from the presidency, uh, and you've seen media conversations pointing that out uh, quickly. Uh, now, uh, just the other day, uh, there was an interesting social media debate when Brian Stelter uh, from Reliable Sources announced that he was going to have Kellyanne Conway on, and uh, he got an immediate backlash. And you know, I participated in that conversation <laughs> if I'm being um, upfront, but because people were saying, "Why uh, would you give her a forum if she has been?" Uh, so dishonest and untruthful in so many other instances, and is it not irresponsible to do so? And, you know, to his credit, he said he thought it was important to get people in official official capacities on the record, you know, with their statements. And, you know, that's neither here nor there, but he did say uh, in the course of that interview to her that he would not allow her to use his forum to spread misinformation. That, I don't think, would have happened, uh, you know, even six months ago. So you think that there has been a level of adaptation from the media in response to that tectonic shift you mentioned that happened a year ago? Sure. I think there's been uh, a level of recognition of it, even if it's only for existential reasons and, and uh, self-interested reasons. But I think in some ways, you know, the media being self-interested has also 
beneficial to democracy. You know, protecting the institution winds up having a salutary effect on lots of other institutions in the society. But when we see things like forbidding uh, the press from uh, recording White House briefings uh, and that kind of hostility, we're saying what exactly you know, is the, the circumstance we're in right now? So I want to finish up by coming full circle. I remember on November 9th last year getting off the elevator to come into work mm -hmm. and looking down at my phone and seeing a tweet from you mm -hmm. that said, my great-grandparents were slaves. Knows, God only knows what I was tweeting that day. <laughs> well, here it is. 8.32 on November 9th. My great-grandparents were slaves. I choose to stay, to stand, and to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a quote, actually, from, um, from Paul Robeson, uh, the African-American activist who, uh, in the midst of the Cold War, uh, he was persecuted for his leftist politics and he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and when he refused to talk about whether or not he was a member of the Communist Party, a frustrated congressman said, you know, if you like the Soviet Union so much, why don't you just go live there? And in response, Robeson said, because my grandparents were slaves. Actually, he said, my parents. He said, uh, Robeson said, because my parents were slaves, and they helped build this country, and no fascist-minded politician will drive me from it. And I think that that had been kind of wrestling with what at that point was an unknown and uh, unknowable landscape. We were looking at this kind of populism, not only in the United States, but resurgent in Europe. The uh, geopolitical implications of you know Russia trying to undo the Atlantic alliances uh, and the kind of world that I feared at worst case scenario would come to resemble the one that produced World War I. Uh, and so those were things that I was, was thinking about at that point in time and also had a real uh, come-to-Jesus conversation with David Remnick about this. And, and he was saying, we have to fight. And I was like, it's true. We have to, you know, then he wrote that amazing yeah, yeah. Um, editorial that day. Uh, and so that was where that tweet came from. And a year on, are you optimistic about the fight that's ongoing? I'm always hesitant to use the term optimism uh, because I think that sometimes we take optimism as an easy out. Uh, what I think is that hope is not lost, if I can phrase it that way. And I think that it is possible for a more democratic society uh, to emerge from the rubble of the moment we're presently occupying. Turning now to the news of the week, I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, Meg Dalton. I'm blushing, Pete. And on the pod for the first time, CJR Delacorte fellow, John Elsel. Thank you for having me. He's British. Um, yes, thanks for clarifying. We could not tell. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that part. So as I was talking about with Jelani, it's been a year since Donald Trump was elected, shocking many Americans and many journalists. And this week, people returned to the polls, electing a set of Democrats across gubernatorial races, uh, some mayor's races in contested cities and in state legislatures. It's been called a wave election, a rebuke of Donald Trump, evidence that Trumpism without Trump can't win. And John, this morning you had some issues with the simplicity of that narrative. 
Yeah, I think it was clearly a very good night for the Democratic Party. I think, you know, it wasn't just the fact that they won, you know, races like the Virginia gubernatorial race, but it's the fact they won pretty comfortably when the polls had been tightening in recent weeks. But I think we need to be very clear that this was a set of localized elections, not sort of one national election. Um, and I think that some of the media has been way too quick to draw broader conclusions from this. As you alluded to, you know, the Times uh, sort of immediate reaction to this was that Trumpism without Trump can't win. Well, that's a very different narrative to what we saw in the wake of the Alabama um, Senate primary just a few weeks ago. The narrative of that looked pretty different to the narrative we're seeing today. Are you suggesting that the media likes a simplistic narrative? Yeah, I think it, well, I think <laughs> in the best of times it we, you know, makes our jobs easier, right? But I think that, you know, especially given that this was one year on from the Trump election, given that I think that, you know, there are a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, hungering for some sort of sense that that Trump might be on the way out. I do think there was probably a rush to take some conclusions that, you know, look positive for Democrats, but and sort of maybe spin them into something that they don't necessarily tell us. Yeah, I think my biggest issue, <clears throat> I agree with John, I think it just painted a very broad stroke. Um, it took things that happened in very specific geographies and applied it to this like wider narrative that just doesn't seem to be true right now, um, especially given like the the voting records of these states previously in like these types of elections. I think that the whole like this is a t quote tidal wave narrative is just so hyperbolic and like way too soon to make any guesses as to what effect this will have on you know a 2020 election. And I don't think it's necessarily an indicator of party strength for the Democrats either. And I think that's been kind of getting lost in this whole conversation, too. Yeah, I think I think Meg's right. I think it's really crucial to look at where this happened. And local papers, you know, usually do much better reporting on the conditions on the ground in these states, which can be more instructive about local races than some attempt to sort of extrapolate out a national mood. In New Jersey, for example, the idea that this was a rebuke to Trump is kind of ridiculous. I mean, Chris Christie was coming out of office in in pretty much in total disgrace. 19 percent approval right. rating. This is a man who, you know, closed down the beaches on Labor Day weekend and then went there on his own. This was not a guy who was popular. Clearly, that had a drag effect on the, the person who was in line to replace him on the GOP side. Um, in Virginia, meanwhile, I think I've seen some confusion maybe between the idea that Virginia is a swing state, which is true, and the idea that it's a bellwether state, which is a bigger idea about what it can tell us about the national picture. Actually, Virginia, which it's important to remember, did go for Clinton last year, um, is a state that's pretty peculiar in many respects. I think these results tell us a lot about the state of politics in Virginia, maybe, but I'm not sure we can extrapolate that yet into a, into a national picture the way that some of the national papers have done. Yeah, and I think it's natural for political writers, political reporters, to want to be able to paint a narrative that connects not just with readers in Richmond or Trenton, but around the country that tells a larger story. One place that larger story wasn't getting told was in the right-wing media. Yeah, I mean, in any conservative news organization, whether it's Fox News or Breitbart, it's like an election didn't even happen on Tuesday. Um, it was either dismissed entirely, ignored, like all of the Democratic electoral gains were not really even part of the primetime conversation. You mean um, Sean Hannity wasn't providing no, you know, Sean live was, analysis? He was so focused on like Trump's global travels uh, and like that took up most of his show. And then I think on Laura Ingram's show too, the last maybe few minutes touched upon the election, but the rest of the show was focused on something else. And like the Fox News website had stories about the different elections on Tuesday, but nothing really on the actual primetime broadcast. And then on Breitbart, 
of course, everything was spun in an entirely different way where they were actually scapegoating Gillespie and I think called him like a swamp thing. And it was like a very much like a dis- distraction oriented um, what happened. They were trying to isolate what happened on Tuesday for Republicans from the actual like conservative right wing movement as a whole. Yeah. And I think to add on that, if you're from a clearly as we've as we've written about and talked about before the right-wing media is not this one homogenous block at the moment i think if you're coming from a mainstream conservative publication these results probably look pretty bad for you if you come from a explicitly pro-trump angle there's real i think plausible deniability here i mean the president is overseas um ed gillespie didn't campaign with him didn't mention him by name um you know the new york times concludes that trumpism without trump can't work well, it doesn't really say much about whether Trumpism with Trump can still work. And so I think if you're on those parts of the right, you still may be feeling more confident than, than the mainstream media would have you believe you should be um, about the enduring appeal of Trump's message. Well, we'll have another year to watch these narratives play out because the midterms are coming up in 2018. And Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that we haven't uh, seen the end of the Trumpism without Trump narrative, the wave narrative, or the Republicans need to embrace Trump even more narrative. Speaking of narratives, our second topic for the roundup concerns one of the primary shapers of the White House's message, and that's Kellyanne Conway, who appeared on Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources, which is his CNN Sunday morning media show, and proceeded to spin, evade, and do what Kellyanne Conway does for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. As Jelani mentioned, the very decision to have her on created something of a debate in media circles. And I'm interested in what you guys think about whether Brian Stelter or any other cable news anchor should be giving Kellyanne Conway airtime to spread her message, the White House's message, if they cannot be relied upon to engage the facts as they are. I think my biggest issue is the show is called Reliable Sources, Mm -hmm. uh, and you bring on an incredibly unreliable source. So the fact that she was on Brian Stelter's show specifically bothered me, and I thought it was very as Jelani Cobb and others have suggested pretty irresponsible because like you know exactly what she's going to say and how she's going to say it and so like what is the benefit for having her on besides you know ratings and sound bites for Brian Stelter and like the show itself yeah and I think you know in addition to the reliable sources irony inviting uh, Kellyanne Conway onto a segment about credibility is like asking the dog catcher to comment on animal welfare. I just don't think it actually kind of serves any purpose. I mean, I'm not one of those people who thinks that we should all boycott Kellyanne Conway all of the time. She is a mouthpiece for the administration. She's actually, I think, a very, uh, sometimes a very articulate and efficient mouthpiece for the administration. And, And clearly, you know, other White House communicators in the past have gone on talk shows and spun and dissimulated. Um, and listening to Conway's appearance on Stelter, a lot of what she says is is maybe not necessarily totally something I'd agree with, but I don't think it's in this sort of realm of alternative fact that she has sort of become, uh, you know, maybe a laughingstock for in some circles. But I think if we're going to have Kellyanne Conway on, on shows, it should be because she has something credible to contribute. It shouldn't just feel like this gratuitous hit job where Brian Stelter yells across her and gets angry and Kellyanne Conway defends herself and in the end they sort of both grin like complicit cats like they've both had a wonderful time and they know the ratings are going to be good. And Kellyanne says, you know, I'll happily come on again whenever you want to do this. It doesn't advance the narrative, it's circular and and so I, while I'm, I think it's facile to call for her to be boycotted by mainstream news shows, I think there has to be a clear sense of purpose as to why she is there. 
kind of piggybacking off what John was saying, I think it can be done really well and it can serve a purpose. And we saw that a couple months ago when, when Jake Tapper had this interview with Kellyanne Conway. I thought that was really well done and I think it served a purpose. But I think this was just like more of the same with what we've seen, right? It's like what was different about this this time? Yeah, I think some of the arguments about this, John, as you mentioned, have gotten a little bit um, reductive that, oh, we should never have Kellyanne Conway on because she said alternative facts and sometimes she dodges the question and goes off on jobs and economy and Trump is a stranger, you know, whatever. I, I think that as a White House spokesperson, whether it's her or Sarah Sanders, there's value in hearing from the administration even if that is only to see them be unable to answer or unwilling to answer a certain set of questions. But Meg, as you say, the questioner, the anchor matters. And I, I don't think Stelter did a terrible job. I think that there was this back and forth that at times was just they were talking past each other. And I also want to point out that Kellyanne Conway was in D.C. remote. Stelter was in the studio in New York. That can make that sort of interview more difficult, right, because you're not in the same room with the person. So I don't want to pile on. I do want to defend his decision to have her on because I think when you have uh, an administration willing to put people out there, you question them, and if they won't respond, you take shots at them and you push back. We can debate whether or not he did that efficiently enough, but I think the argument that we just ban these mouthpieces, we don't have Sarah Sanders, we don't have Kellyanne Conway, we don't have other people on – I don't agree with that one. I don't agree with that either for the record. I just think the I don't know if he was the right person or the and I don't know if the show was the right place for that to happen. I think another I think we should in the in maybe the mainstream press to coin a phrase stop claiming a monopoly of virtue on these things. Like he was asking her about opinion polls that showed a low level of White House credibility. Now, I mean polls are clearly scientifically robust in a way which Kellyanne Conway lying through her teeth is not. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't claim that polls are always correct. I think we've seen ample evidence, if we're going to you know, remember what happened a year ago this week, that we shouldn't always trust what opinion polls say, or we should take them in a, in a broader context. A lot of the pushback she gave him was making that point. Now, that's not to defend other things that she said on this segment and on others, which are demonstrably false. But would you expect you know, a spokesperson for the Obama administration or the Clinton administration or any other presidential administration to go on, be asked why your rating's terrible and say we accept they're terrible and that study, that poll is completely factually accurate. They wouldn't. They'd push back and they'd say those are not the numbers that matter. Pretty much the sort of things Kellyanne Conway did say. She's capable of being a normal mouthpiece. I think the media needs to treat her like that and treat her to that standard and not sort of have her on as this carnival sideshow, which is something we see too often, I think. The carnival is fun to watch. Is it? Who likes the carnival? The first time, but after <laughs> I mean, you've gone through the roller coaster a few times, you start feeling sick, right? So I don't know. If yeah, that's a good point, John. And we'll leave this discussion there. Quickly through our last topic, we've talked about the Harvey Weinstein story for the last month or so since the New York Times and New Yorker first broke it open. But a new development this week was yet another Ronan Farrow scoop in the New Yorker talking about the way in which Weinstein had hired private investigators, ex-Israeli intelligence spies, and essentially an army of lawyers to intimidate journalists, harass actresses who were speaking with journalists. It really was a shocking piece. We've been through, as I said, a ton of Weinstein stuff in the past. But Meg, you were impressed with the way Farrow handled it, specifically the way he 
talked about the people involved in the story? Yeah, so one of the common narratives that Ronan Farrow has been trying to push is is like not making himself the story. And I think this week he did a really great job at showing that he was not the only person involved in breaking this this huge the the part one as well as part two, these two huge pieces. Like he gave a lot of credit, I think, in a Twitter thread to the fact checkers involved and the editors and just everybody who worked with him on the piece. And I thought that sometimes gets lost in conversations surrounding these huge breaking stories is like oftentimes it's like so focused on the reporter themselves. And usually that reporter doesn't want to become the story. And that's what Ronan Farrow has been saying the last couple of weeks. Like, I don't want to be the story. And I think that's because he understands that so much goes into this, something of this scope. Um, And I think he did a really great job at reminding people of everybody involved in the process of tackling something like this. Yeah, it is. As you mentioned, it's something that often goes unnoticed, but whether it's his reporting at the New Yorker or Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's reporting at the New York Times, there is a bevy of editors and fact checkers and legal people that go through and make sure that these stories come out and have the impact that they do. So that's a good place to end uh, this continuing conversation about a disturbing topic. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Jelani Cobb for coming in to talk with me and thank my colleagues Meg Dalton and John Alsop for being here as well. Thank you for listening and please check out all the great work we've got up at CJR.org. We'll see you next week.